Thank you, Pastor Stephanie. Uh, West Hills, it is so good to be here this morning. Um, I, I'd appreciate, I'd appreciate um, prayer really briefly. As, as I'm speaking, I started coughing during worship. And so the last song I asked Beatrix, I was like, oh, give me a glass of water, please, because I do believe God wants to um, speak this morning, and he's allowed, he's allowed me to be here. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. It's like <laughs> cleverly concealed. <laughs> They're on to me. <clears throat> All right. So, um, but, but yes, um, uh, Pastor Mark, Pastor Stephanie were some of the first people to welcome me into the covenant in 2012 when I began uh, the church planting process. And actually, uh, you know, to get ordained in the covenant, we all have to take a class called vocational excellence where they tell pastors, they go, pastors, you have to make friends. <laughs> and so Mark reaches out to me and he's like, hey, let's be friends. So we're like officially friends, um, and we've gotten to do some other things that were not related to class as well. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, but my name is Joel, and I do get to serve as the planting pastor of Access Covenant Church in Southeast Portland and West Hills. You may or may not know this, um, but you have supported us, and your support, um, your prayers, your encouragement, and your giving has helped us to lean in to what God has for us, has helped us to stay in the game in the last six and a half years of uh, the church planting work. So um, you are a crucial part. You are a crucial part of what we are getting to be part of in Southeast. So thank you so much for your support. Um, a little bit about uh, me. I live with my wife, Sabrina, and uh, we've been married 15 years, so I'm excited about that. Um, and, and we used to live with three kids. Oh, there's a PowerPoint here. Sorry, at, at home I don't have this. There we are. Okay. We used to live with three kids. But as you can see, now we live with one kid and two hulking teenage man beasts <laughs> who are eating me out of house and home and uh, forcing me to take their phones away at bedtime. All that good stuff. Um, <clears throat> quick ministry update, since you all are partnering with us in ministry. We have just made a big change in access. We started Sunday worship in March of 2013, and we did Sunday worship every single week right up through October 6th of 2019. And this month, we're beginning a new rhythm where we do formal worship two times a month in uh, the Mount Scott Community Center, if you're familiar with Southeast Portland. Uh, we're in the Mount Scott Community Center doing formal worship twice a month. And then twice a month, we are doing table Sundays. And what happens at table Sundays is uh, we have um, a longer time to sit together at tables, to wrestle through scripture, to share our lives, uh, to pray for one another. So we did the first one last week, and I'm so excited. Like, sometimes you're like, it worked, <laughs> right? It was fire, y'all. Um, we had a table for teens, and we had a table for preteens, and we uh, even had a separate table for toddler parents. We just got out a big rug because um, we don't have a separate toddler ministry. They just stay with us in worship. And so we spread out this big rug and the toddler parents did their, they used their toddler parent superpowers. I don't know if you know it. It goes like this. In my life right now, I just feel like Jesus is, are you hungry? Do you want Cheerios? Uh, wanting to speak to me about some deep internal, no hitting, no hitting, gently. Gently, uh, healing that needs to happen from, from some old pain that comes from my juice box? Do you want a juice box? Um, but seriously, 
They got through it. It was a powerful experience. Everyone, all the table hosts reported they were, they were able to share and, and everyone was able to participate. <clears throat> and by the end of the time, there was this one table where everyone was in tears. And, and, and we just closed with one, one song together and people on their knees crying and praying for each other. And I'm thinking, I should preach less often. <laughs> um, and yet I've been invited to preach here this morning, so West Hills... Joke's on you. (laughs) Um, Just kidding. It is an absolute treat to be here, um, and I am so grateful for our friendship, uh, for your partnership. Um, It's a gift to be together today. Um, Sadly, you know, our occasion for being together is um, because of a crisis, right? It is because of a crisis of of, uh, displacement of persons, a global crisis. Now, um, a displaced person uh, is someone who's forced to leave their home, either because of an armed conflict uh, or persecution, because of a natural disaster, or because of a severe economic change. And we are in a crisis. Here are some numbers about that. At the end of 2017, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees recorded uh, 68.5 million people displaced Over 25 million of these met the formal criteria for refugees, uh, and half of those are children under the age of 18. Here in the United States, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement is currently detaining 52,000 people. And my dear mission friends, every single one of these numbers is a record high. So personally, for me, as the husband uh, of an Argentine immigrant who had to live in this country without documents for years, um, as, as the son of a Filipina immigrant whose uh, it, it, immigration from Asia was deeply restricted until 1965 when my mother was able to come here and still faced many struggles, um, these issues hit close to home. So when I contemplate these numbers, it's easy for me to feel hopeless. When I, when I read the stories in the paper, it's easy. I begin to feel sad. I begin to feel angry. I begin to feel helpless. And so as I'm processing these things, as I'm struggling, as I'm doubting and grieving, I believe the Spirit of God would interrupt me. I believe the Word of God would interrupt me. And and the Word would say to me, and the Gospel would say to us, God is big enough. God is big enough to deal with the crisis of displaced persons. God is big enough to deal with the crisis that is at record high. God is big enough to deal with the crisis that is affecting the whole world and our own country in unprecedented ways. So that's an invitation to me. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm just saying that's what I believe the word says. I believe the word says God is big enough. And so I'm struggling. Maybe you're struggling. So I want you to do this. I want you to look at your neighbor and tell him God is big enough. Go ahead.
Okay, good start. But your neighbor does not believe you. Put your hand on their shoulder, look them in the eye, and tell them God is big enough. All right, we're getting there. We're getting there. <clears throat> Listen, I want to briefly share a story about an experience I had. It, it, pretty good. I was, actually, the first time out, I was like, whoa, they're really good. But I just pushed you a little more. We, we can always be better. Um, I want to share a story about an experience I had, and then I, I'll briefly have us contemplate a passage of Scripture that, that I think gives us a biblical template for how to deal with an immigration crisis. Um, and, and I want to do this because... Um, it is so important that we believe God is big enough. If we assume that our only tools are the ones that we can see, and the only reality we are working with is the one that we can already imagine, family, we are going to get stuck. We're going to hear a scripture like that one that was just read in Leviticus 19, and and we're going to say, you know, that's a wonderful idea to treat newcomers as our native-born, but God, who would pay for it? You know, God, I sympathize with what you're trying to do here, but we have to be practical. And so what, what I want to say is the Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh and became one of us. Okay? He lived a human life. He suffered and he died and he rose again. He is in the miracle business. He has conquered death. He knows what to do with an immigration crisis. Amen? So in June of 2018... Uh, news broke of the intentional separation of uh, children from their parents at our southern border. And uh, as someone who's been involved with the Latino immigrant community here in the Pacific Northwest since 2002, um, what I can say is something that had been happening accidentally or coincidentally became policy in June of 2018. And news broke, and at the thought of thousands of children separated from their parents. Thousands of parents unable to locate their, their four and three and two and one-year-old children. Something in me broke. We had one Sunday of prayer and lament, and after that I did not speak to my church about it again. And I did not speak to God about it again, because I had no hope. But when something is woven into your story, it becomes impossible to avoid. I shared my background, right? The son of an immigrant, the husband of an immigrant. It's woven into my story. But guess what? Covenant Church, we are very intentional about pursuing the multi-ethnic mosaic of the kingdom of God. And so if we're covenanters, it is woven into our story. And guess what? Of those 52,000 in ICE custody right now, the majority of them are Christian believers. And so if we are Christians, family, this is woven into our story. And when the early church baptized converts into the body of Christ, they would say those words recorded for us in Galatians 3.27, they would say, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So early on, the church had to confront this. They had to say our national and cultural and legal and economic statuses are secondary to our profound attachment to one another because of Jesus Christ. Jesus. 
And when something is woven into your story, it's impossible to avoid it forever. So on Sunday, March 31st of this year, I'm in worship, and we pass around these uh, prayer cards every week. And usually I pray, and I'm like, God, help me with this. God, help me with that, et cetera. Help our church. Um, but for some reason that morning, I, I wrote these words. I have completely given up on the situation at the border. I feel hopeless, helpless, furious. Lord, show me how to faithfully respond. So the plan with those prayer cards is that Monday morning at 9.30, we're going to gather in staff meeting, we're going to go through the cards, and we're going to pray. Monday morning, 7 a.m., I get a message from Dominique Gilliard at Covenant Headquarters in Chicago. We're going to the border in June. Want to come? We haven't even prayed yet. You're ahead of schedule. Oh, you're on, you're on Chicago time. I get it. Okay. Okay. So last, last Father's Day weekend, I was at the San Diego-Tijuana border um, learning with about 20 other covenant pastors, learning from, from people who live there, from pastors, from community leaders, from residents, from migrants um, who were are, who are undertaking that journey. So I'm going to share a few stories from my trip, and uh, I'll share them alongside a passage of scripture, and, and I'll invite you to join me in praying to believe that God is big enough. Now, the books of Exodus... Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus, they have repeated commands to care for immigrants as, as God begins to set up what his people will look like and how they are to organize their life together. To, uh, commands to care for immigrants, to treat them as the native born. We just heard one of those read. Um, but the Psalms and the prophets and the New Testament letters all have uh, strong reflections of God's heart um, for specific ways to treat uh, immigrants and foreigners um, but today I want to specifically look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And I know, uh, Pastor Mark, uh, I heard you mentioned this earlier a couple weeks ago. Um, Acts 6, 1 to 7 gives us uh, in story form, shows us God's heart in story form. Now, an even better, an even better look at God's heart for immigrants is in the book of Ruth. The whole book of Ruth. That story, and this is maybe a teaser for later, Boaz actually, uh, what he's doing when he commands his people to leave some grain for Ruth when she comes by, he's actually obeying the commands found in the law of Moses. So the whole book of Ruth is actually, I think, the best treatment in story form. But I only have five minutes left in this talk, so we're going to do Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Um, What's happened here is people from 14 different nations have come to the city of Jerusalem. They've had an encounter with Jesus that has transformed their lives and it's caused them to move in together and start sharing resources. Now there are Hebraic Jews. They grew up speaking Hebrew uh, in Judah. And then there are the Hellenistic Jews who grew up speaking Greek in those other 14 nations from all over the world. And when God puts them in a position where they have to share uh, space and resources, it ain't easy. Some conflicts arise. Um, so check this out. This is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment to pray. God in heaven, so often your vision of the multi-ethnic mosaic of your people can feel like a multi-ethnic mess. So this morning I want to thank you for this story, thank you for this word that reminds us that we are not alone in that feeling. We are not alone in that struggle and for a long time your people, we your people have needed your help your intervention to understand how to live when your spirit leads us to share space and resources to live with and listen to and love one another. And so, Jesus, we confess today that we need your help again. We confess it over this text. We confess it over the immigration crisis. And, Lord God, as your disciples, we confess it over our lives. And so we pray, Spirit of God, speak through the word of God to the people of God. And we all said, Amen. So people from all around the world have come together. They're called to love one another. They're experiencing this new life in Jesus. And and things are going great. I mean, this is amazing. 14 different nations, thousands of people converting. I mean, if I'm one of the apostles, I'm feeling, you know, I feel okay uh, about how things are going. And then all of a sudden, these immigrant widows start complaining. Now, they start saying, uh, we're dependent on you for our survival, and you're not giving us our fair share. Now, um, I I confess to you that if I heard that from these newcomers, who I have made space for as a leader, who I have sacrificed for, with whom I have shared the good news of Jesus Christ, if I hear that they're complaining because my people are not giving them enough, I'm mad. I am mad. No, no, no. Um, I'm offended. Now, some of you are holier than I am, right? Some of you are like, oh, gross. Where's the compassion? Some of you are holier than I am. That's fantastic. Praise Jesus. Keep it up. (laughs) But I freely confess to you, I am not that guy. Um, I'm offended. I'm proud, man. How can you say that to me? But that impulse that tells me to be offended, that impulse that calls these immigrants ungrateful, That impulse that tells me to defend my reputation and my self-perception, 
That is an impulse that believes that God is not big enough. That's what that's about. Now look, what happens here is not intentional. It's the kind of thing that happens when you get diverse groups together and there's some kind of language or cultural barrier. It's totally normal. Um, but it's also the kind of thing that happens when you've got a diverse group and only one demographic, in this case, um, Jewish men from Judah, is in charge of making the decisions. Um, but as the, as the apostles say yes to this belief that God is big enough, this amazing thing happens, and they start to not just believe it, not just to say yes to that belief, but to actually experience it and see it. And so I, I just want to pull out three things from this text that I think we can all do that will help all of us see, Jesus, you are big enough for this crisis. Is that okay? All right. The early church chooses to hear the voices of those who are having the experience. Oh, see, I told you, I'm, I'm not used to this thing. But they also choose to pass the mic to those who are having this experience. And finally, they, they choose to influence on behalf of those who are having this experience. So the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Uh, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together. You know what strikes me about this? The apostles didn't have to get everyone together. Right? The apostles could have said, you are making too big a deal with, of this. I mean, it's not like you got nothing, you got something. The apostles could have said, oh, I think there's something about those people from other countries. Maybe they eat too much. I don't know. Why are they asking for more? Why do they want special treatment? The apostles could have told them no, but they do the opposite. They listen to these immigrant women. They say, we're going to take you seriously. We're going to believe what you say about what is happening to you. The immigration crisis at our border has causes in uh, Central America um, and the U.S. Uh, in Central America, um, because of extreme violence in Honduras, in Guatemala, in El Salvador, thousands of people are fleeing those countries. They're seeking asylum here. Now, historically, asylum seekers have been able to present themselves at any port of entry and say, I'm an asylum seeker. And at that point, they would be detained by Border Patrol for no more than 72 hours. They would be uh, then released on their own recognizance to um, a sponsor, typically a family member. Now, what's changed here, well, and, and then with that sponsor, sorry, they would await a court date to actually determine the veracity of their asylum hearing. But the current administration uh, has recently implemented a policy, recently, the last two years. I'm 41, so two years. It's recent, okay? Um, the current administration has implemented a policy called the Migrant Protection Protocol that requires these migrants to remain in Mexico. Um, at a place like this, that's um, Casa del Migrante in uh, Tijuana, Mexico. Um, it's it's a uh, policy called the Migrant Protection Protocol requires them to remain in Mexico um, because, according to whitehouse.gov, to allow them into our country um, makes them easy targets for um, drug traffickers and human traffickers. So I want to share about what I learned in Tijuana. And I'll share it specifically through the eyes of a father and his teenage daughter. The father's name was Jose, and he was there with his 16-year-old daughter, Lillian. 
And uh, we had dinner together at Casa del Migrante, where about 120 uh, migrants spend every night. They're permitted to stay there for about two weeks um, while they're given holistic care, um, access to a priest, a psychologist, uh, daily dinner, and uh, encouragement for the job search. We'll tell you about why that happens. Um, Jose and Lillian were refugees seeking asylum from Honduras. Jose has family in Texas. So they presented themselves for asylum at a port of entry in Texas. Now what happened at that point was, instead of being released to uh, his brother, who lives in Texas, they were held in a facility there for one week. And then after that week, they said, um, our facility's full. We have to transfer you. So they were flown on a plane to San Diego, where they were held for one more week. And then after they were held uh, for one week in San Diego, they said, um, you have a court date in September. This was May. And we need you to remain in Mexico until then. So then they're dropped off in Tijuana. They have no family. They spent all of their money to get to the border. They have no cell phone, no means of contacting the people responsible for their court dates. And because that has happened over and over again in border cities like Tijuana, like Juarez, those cities are now among the most dangerous in the world because you have thousands of displaced people with no resources, and there they are extremely vulnerable targets to drug traffickers, to human traffickers. We must hear the voices of those who are going through the experience. We must allow them to tell us what is happening. We cannot sit off from a distance, scrolling social media and reading news feeds, and assume that we are getting a full picture. We must hear the voices of Jose and Lillian. I'm going to keep going. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolas, from Antioch, and a convert to Judaism. When I first started reading the Bible, I could think of nothing more boring than lists of names. What is this even? How does this help me in my spiritual life? <clears throat> but that changes when we understand what we're reading. And the reason this is here is because every single one of those names is a Greek name. Every single person on this list is a bicultural immigrant. Someone with direct experience, connected to the experience that the widows are having. And when we pass the mic to those with first-hand experience, we will start to see that God is big enough. This just happened to my wife. Like I shared, my wife is an immigrant from Argentina, came here when she was three, grew up here. She's now a school counselor at David Douglas High School, um, which, uh, until they opened the big one over on this side of the river, Douglas is still the biggest, most diverse high school uh, in the state of Oregon. 88 languages spoken there. Um, oddly enough, in spite of such a diverse student population, um, my wife is the only Latina counselor in the entire school district. How does this happen? That's another conversation. So what happens is uh, an influential person in the district um, called her up and said, will you please come and do a presentation at Hispanic Heritage Night? Which is another way of saying, oh, will you please log about six hours for free because you're the only person we can talk to about this. And she's feeling kind of bummed about it. She's feeling very alone. 
Um, and that same day, um, I'm praying with her in the afternoon, well, really listening to her. I'm listening, and I'm praying silently as she shares how lonely she feels, how pressured she feels to come and sort of be this token. So what she does is she says, well, I can't say no. Like, this needs to happen. So she calls up the families that she works with in the Latino Student Union. She calls up the parents that she worked with at Latino Parent Night. She said, will you please come and share your story? Now, if you've ever done this kind of work, you know people don't necessarily come when you invite them. You know what I'm saying? So she's prepared to share about two sentences. It's like, good evening. Thank you so much. Good night. <laughs> All right, so that's, that's what she's got. So she gets there. And her coworkers have shown up. Her students have shown up. Their parents have shown up. She says, good evening. Thank you. Good night. Listen to the stories of these families. And I'm at home with the kids. I have no idea what's going on. She gets home like two hours late. What's going on? She comes home. She's glowing. She's like, look at this picture. Look at all these people who talked. Look at these people who have been here for years and these who are recent immigrants. And, and their voices were brought right into the center of the school board meeting. Hallelujah. That's an answered prayer. And we started to see that when we pass the mic to those who have firsthand experience, we discover that God is big enough. And moving right along. We have a chance to influence. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This is a powerful act. Again, they didn't have to bring the immigrants into the center, but instead they said, actually, we're going to put them right in the center, and we're going to use the authority that we have, the spiritual authority, just like we did when we prayed for the kids going to thunder, just like we did as we prayed the blessing to remember. They put them in the center of the community, and they blessed them. And we all have an opportunity to use our influence in some way. And in just a few moments, um, we are going to have, have a few opportunities um, that your biblical justice team has been working on to present to you. Um, here's a list of, oh, <laughs> yeah, this is a church that, they're, they're a church and they just celebrate communion on the border every Sunday. Friends, that's the border wall. And I can talk all about that, but uh, time is short. But here they are using the influence they have. This is not a big church, right? They say, well, we can celebrate the Eucharist. And so they celebrate. It's a bilingual service. On this side, one pastor's leading communion. And on the other side, the American side, there's another pastor leading communion. And uh, before we celebrate communion together, we walk up to the fence. There's only a very tiny hole in the fence. We stick our pinkies through. And we pass the peace to one another. And then we break the bread and receive the cup. That's an example of using your influence. It's a list of organizations. I'll, uh, yeah, I can highlight some of these. I'll highlight the one on the top, the National Immigration Forum. That is a legal resource group, um, and it is a self-consciously centrist organization. It's a politically centrist organization. A lot of these reform groups are leftists for obvious reasons, because we're mad. What? National Immigration Forum. Sorry, I'm mad. You guys aren't mad. I'm mad. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it's a politically centrist organization led by immigrants that is going over the laws with a fine-tooth comb, 
saying, what little things can we do without doing something dramatic? Let's not get crazy. Let's do little things that uh, bring common sense and humanity into this crisis. All right. I want to share one last story. We spent some time uh, with a group of uh, mothers who'd been deported and were staying in Tijuana. Their children were in the United States. And as I told you before, I had come feeling so hopeless. And so we listened to these mothers, and they shared their stories, and they said, you know, we're not criminals. Our only crime was paperwork. But our children are legal residents in the US. And we've been living this life apart. And so what these mothers have done is, you know, because they're not actually from Tijuana, They've moved in together. They support one another. They meet each other's needs. They help each other with, with legal advocacy. They pray for one another. Um, the founder is a woman named Yolanda, who was deported uh, nine years ago. And as she shared her story, she said, I feel that nine years ago, I died. But I have to keep going. Because I have faith that one day I will see my children again. As I heard the stories of these women and I heard Yolanda's faith and her resolve, I said, okay, Lord, if Yolanda's not giving up, I am also not giving up. Jesus, help me. Help me not to give up. And I believe if we choose to believe that God is big enough, if we choose to listen to the voices of those who are having this experience, if we choose where we are able to pass the microphone, just like we did with the scripture reading, let's pass the microphone. If we choose to use the little influence that we have, we will see together that God is big enough. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are no stranger to heartache. The Bible calls you at one point the man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Thank you that in the midst of the global displacement crisis, you are familiar with the suffering of all of our sisters, all of our brothers. We pray that you would help us. Help us, Jesus, to believe that you are big enough Help us to be strengthened with the truth that your work of love and healing and justice will not be stopped. But you are moving all of creation towards a redemptive end when every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. So as we continue with the gathering this morning, would you soften our hearts, soften our ears, soften our minds to receive from your spirits. In your name, amen. Thank you so much. And uh, at this time, I'd like to invite Lisa to come and share with us.
this is not about my refugee story. This is about my grandparents' refugee story and my parents' refugee story, and I want to be able to tell it well. If we haven't met yet, my name is Lisa Wynn, and if you're wondering, where are you from? The answer is San Jose, California. Both my parents left their home, family, country, and gave up everything they had because there was nothing left for them. They fled for their lives. They had no choice but to leave with all they could carry on them and, or die. My dad was, a South Vietnamese, was in the South Vietnamese Air Force during the Vietnam War. His loyalty to Vietnam was strong and his advocacy against co communist oppression in Vietnam was evident because I watched him attend every rally and every protest that happened in Southern California. My dad's story is a little bit different than most on how he came to the States. While in combat, my dad just finished a mission in the air and was flying back to his base to find that his base was destroyed. My dad was actually married at the time and had a son. My mom told me that he tried to land and rescue his family, but he couldn't and decided to leave Vietnam by flying his plane to the Philippines. He then got sponsored by an American pilot who trained him during the war and brought my dad to Longview, Washington. My mom had fled Vietnam during the war with her family in 1975. They were on a boat that got pirated and conditions were poor. Once they were rescued, they found themselves in Pendleton and then they were fortunate, fortunate enough to be sponsored by a church in South Dakota. A couple months ago, before I was asked to even share today, my mom sent me a picture of a newspaper article about her family being sponsored. I don't know if I sent it, but. Because of the support of this family and this church, my parents, my grandparents, were able to work and provide a stable living condition for their family and move to Portland, Oregon. My parents met in Portland, Oregon. My dad frequently visited um, the only probably Vietnamese restaurant in town that was owned by my grandparents. And that's where my mom worked, and that's when they got married and moved to San Jose, California, where I was born. We ended up in Southern California, and that is where I say I grew up. I saw the struggle as my parents tried to survive and provide for our family. My siblings and I were not given Vietnamese names, and though most families were brought up to assimilate, my parents did not try to force that on us too much. Vietnamese was my only language until I was about four, and Spanish was actually my second language because we actually lived really close to um, a neighbor that was Mexican, and they helped my parents watch us while they worked. My dad always believed that we would learn English in school, and we did. He also didn't speak to us in English, and we would always have to talk to him in Vietnamese, which was a blessing in disguise because I so appreciate knowing the language now, being an American-born. My dad worked in a computer factory. My mom worked as a medical office person. Both of them worked really hard to gain respect and skills that they needed to move up. They never missed a day of work. They woke up early and stayed up late so that they could actually spend time with us. I remember them making the best of what um, they had. Though we were not wealthy, they always made sure that we had what we needed and sometimes things we wanted. My dad was able to move from factory to office and my mom put herself in college to get her BA and then got her MBA in business administration while I was in college myself. They never asked for help. They didn't share their struggle. Their heartache and memories of the war was all they had to remember of Vietnam. And because of that, they never wanted to go back. Thankfully, my dad was able to go back to Vietnam a couple times before he passed away. And I went back for the first time in 2008 to bring his ashes back. I was able to go to a second time in 2016 um, and was able to convince my mom to go back with me. And that was the first time she ever came, she ever went back. Um, I'm a product of my grandparents and my parents' escape for a better life. When they see me, they see that all that they went through was worth it. They are so proud to be both American and Vietnamese. 
America gave them the opportunity to be successful. But I will never understand that despair, that uncertainty of the future, that fear of being in another country with literally nothing. I never considered myself a person of color. I didn't really need to. I lived in a community that was full of color. It wasn't until I moved to Portland, Oregon that I was able to associate and acknowledge that I was. One of the questions that was asked to me was, what challenge have you or your family faced as an immigrant refugee to feel you belong in America, Portland, the church? This, was a question, this question was hard for me to answer, not because there weren't any challenges, but it was because I was born here. I'm neither refugee or immigrant to America. But even though I was born here, the challenges occur when I step into a room. I belong here. There's, this is my country. But I constantly feel like I need to prove my birthright. And it hurts me to know that my kids may have to do the same. Some of the challenges I face are people staring at my family when, I, when we dine out or in general, if we go to a place where we're the only people of color. People communicating in me, communicating in a way that makes me feel as if I have the hard time understanding them. Criticizing or making comments about the food that we eat. Stereotyping and making assumptions before they even know me, and the list goes on and on. There have been many times when I share these challenges with my friends who are, who are white, and they do not validate my experience. What they try to do is sugarcoat or water down my experience because, men, because they're in their mentality and how they think is, I am not racist, therefore it doesn't exist. My kids have unfortunately been around us when we have been yelled at racial slurs, and I hope that you agree that they are much too young to witness such a thing. But thankfully, I'm a part of a really cool women cohort here at West Hills, um, a women of color cohort. And it has been so good for me to be in a space where I'm heard and seen for who I am. It's refreshing that I get to experience or get to express how I feel and not be dismissed. And there's a solidarity of an understanding of the pain and anger. It has been affirming and healing. People of, people of color put up with microaggression on the daily. And church, if we can agree, that God's word is true, and that God's word is written for all. That we need to be better without the that we need to be better without the exception of race, gender, and ethnicity. I also need to be better about supporting my other brothers and sisters that not only feel microaggression but straight up aggression, who live in fear daily and no longer safe in their homes. My journey with God has been difficult, as I currently process how how we close doors to people seeking refuge in this country because there is no longer safe for their family. I can't help but think about my family being denied to come here and I have been struggling to see God and his people. I have been disappointed and hurt, but I realize that people change, but God remains the same. With that, I have been able to focus and seek word for truth. And when I do, all I hear is love thy neighbor. God does not love me because I'm Vietnamese. God does not love me because I'm American. God loves me because I'm his beloved. I am made in his image. The Bible was not written for America. The Bible was written for his people. That's me, that's you, and everyone in between us, from east to west and north to south.